0: All right, Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 1 through 4 is where we'll start off with. Ezekiel 40, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me to the city in visions of God. He brought me to the land of Israel, and he set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I show you, shall show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. <clears throat> now, as we get into our study tonight, let me just kind of explain to you where we're going to be going and give you a little heads up. We're going to be dealing now with the last section of the book of Ezekiel in our study that we've been in for quite a while. Chapters 40 through 48 are about this vision that God gave Ezekiel, as we see here, 14 years after the city was destroyed and the temple had been destroyed. He's in Babylon, as you know, as an exile. It's been 25 years that he's been in exile. And at this time, he's given this vision. He's taken a vision to, to Israel. And he's shown what we're going to be looking at. And chapters 40 through 48 are all that he's been shown and all the things that he's been told. And as you just heard, he's to declare it to the people of Israel. Now, as you heard probably in my prayer, um, this section of scripture, most commentators say, is one of the hardest to interpret. And if you actually even decide, I'm going to do my own study of this, I encourage you to do it. But let me just give you a little heads up. You will find every kind of interpretation under the sun out there as to what chapters 40 through 48 mean. And as you know, when I, when I teach, I'm gonna share with you what I believe the scripture says, to use scripture to interpret scripture. And as always, I take prophecy literally. And if, as we saw the Old Testament prophets, when they spoke of the first coming of Jesus, they were fulfilled literally. I believe the, New Te- uh, the Old Testament prophets' prophecy about the second coming of Jesus and all that will be fulfilled literally as well. And I think the whole passage doesn't become hard if you actually believe what it says instead of trying to make it say something else. So we're going to begin to do that. So let's start breaking this down a little bit here. <clears throat> it says, this is 25 years after being taken captive and 14 years after the temple and the city were destroyed. Um, I think this is around 573 B.C. My math puts it about 573 B.C. You see a little, uh, the little picture that I, I have out for you there on your handouts. Uh, the person that did this uh, uh, little diagram of the Ezekiel's temple, they have it as 572 B.C., It doesn't really matter that much, but I I think it's 573, all right? Now, the actual day of the year, though, that God gave him this vision is kind of interesting. According to our passage, what month and what day of the year was he given the vision? It was the 10th day of the month on which month? The first month of the year. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. No, it's not January. In Exodus chapter 12, look at, the verses, look at what, verses 1 through 7. It said, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their, to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can, uh, can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old, and you may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So here we see it when the it, Passover was instituted, God told Moses, start your calendar all over. Now it's the first day of the year. On the 10th day of the first month, they're to take a lamb and welcome it into the house, treat it as a pet, if you will. But on the 14th at twilight, they were to kill it. As we know, this is the beginning of the Passover. If you know anything about what happened with Jesus, he rode into Jerusalem on the first, uh, sorry, the 10th day of that same first month of the year when he rode in on the donkey and they proclaimed him king. Of course, a few days later, what did they do? They put him to death, just like the Passover lamb. It's interesting to me that on that exact same day of the year, so many years later, on that first month of the year, 10th day of the month, Ezekiel's given this vision. Interestingly enough, as you're going to see, we won't get there tonight. The Spirit of God comes to back into the temple area during this vision on that same day, which is kind of neat. Jesus rode into Jerusalem through the eastern gate. And came in, and on this day, so many years later, the vision, the Spirit of God is gonna come and dwell the tabernacle or the temple that is during Ezekiel's, uh, Ezekiel's given pictures of during his time, which as you're gonna see in just a little bit, I believe is the Millennial Kingdom Temple as we get to it. Now, he's taken to the land of Israel, and he's set on a very high mountain. Now, on this mountain is also a structure that looks like a city to the south. Now, it's interesting, he knows he's in Israel. But he doesn't say, I was put on mountain so-and-so. Because you're about to see from, I'm going to show you from Scripture, at this point, when what Ezekiel's being given a vision of actually takes place, Israel's not going to look like it did before. What will have just happened prior to the millennial kingdom? What will have just gone on on the earth? The tribulation period, right? At the end of the tribulation period is going to be this massive earthquake that levels the whole earth, and Jerusalem is going to be split into three parts. The center part where the temple is is going to be raised up really high. And well, instead of just taking my word for it, let's take a look at the scriptures. I think this very high mountain is most likely Mount Zion, but Mount Zion after the topographical changes at the end of the tribulation period. You're in Ezekiel chapter 40. We see here again in verse 2, he set me down on a very high mountain. Go to, go to Ezekiel chapter 17, back up to his chapter 17, and look at verses 22 through 24. Ezekiel 17, verse 22, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. and the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest." And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. So here, if you remember from our study way back on this, when God used this word picture to describe Israel, and he had, they were this lofty tree, he was going to take a piece of it, set it aside, and later on he was going to plant it where? On a very high, lofty mountain. Ezekiel is taken now and set down on a high, lofty mountain. And he looks to the south, <clears throat> and he sees this structure... That looked like a city. Well, go to Ezekiel chapter 20. Look at verses 40 through 44. God says, For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choices of your gifts. With all your sacred offerings, as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, not according to your Corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Again, another prophecy about the millennial kingdom, but where is this going to happen according to verse 40? On his mountain height of Israel. Again, go to Isaiah chapter 2. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, The word of the Lord, <clears throat> the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Did you catch that? Did I give you wrong wrong verse? It's Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 2. Let's go back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and he shall dis- decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord." So here we see that not only is Israel going to be on a mountain, it's going to be the highest of the mountains. God's going to change the topography in Israel during the end of the tribulation period and the mountain temple area is going to become the highest area of all the areas around. Well, go to Micah chapter 4. As you've heard me say many times in this study, but wait, there's more. Micah chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, so he'll decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. All right? So, again, here we now see in verses 1 through 7. Actually, let's go to verse 7. In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. Verse 6. The lame, and gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So I don't think it's an accident. And by the way, we're not done looking at scriptures to show this, but I don't think it's an accident that he writes that he was taken in a vision to Jerusalem. He's remember he's in Babylon, but he's taken in the spirit to Jerusalem and he, in Israel there, and he sat on a very high mountain. All right, go to Revelation chapter sixteen. Revelation chapter, seven, chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. <clears throat> it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since the man was on earth. So great was the earthquake that the great city, this is Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fear of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountain were to be found. And great hailstones about a hundred pounds each fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So when this uh, angel pours out his bowl into the air, there's going to be an earthquake on the earth at the end of the tribulation period that is so great. Never had there been one like this ever before that every single mountain is leveled. Every island disappears. And what happens to Jerusalem? Keep this in mind because I'm going to take you to Zechariah in a second. What happens to Jerusalem? It's split into three parts. That's much, That much we know from Revelation, it's split into three parts. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 14. Look at verses 9 through 11. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. If you were to actually go back and read from the beginning of chapter 14, there's a bunch of different prophecies that are all put together, so it's hard to kind of pull them apart. But you'll see that there's going to be a massive earthquake in Jerusalem, and there's going to be the Mount of Olives going to split in two, and a whole lot. But what's going to happen in Jerusalem at the end of the tribulation period, when this earthquake happens on the whole earth, is that the center part, where the temple area is, is going to be raised up, and the rest of it's going to be to the north of it and to the south of it are going to be leveled out. He's now set on a very high mountain in Jerusalem, and he looks and he sees to the south a structure that looks like a city. I believe that this structure, that looks like a city, as you're gonna see tonight, is the temple complex that will be during the Millennial Kingdom. Now the handout that's on your table that you have there, for those that are listening online, I'm gonna see what I can do to get a picture of this put on our website, so that if you're listening, you could at least go click on the picture and have a good idea of what we're talking about, because if you're not here tonight, uh, it's gonna be harder for you. This is not a perfect diagram of what I believe the temple complex is gonna look like, but it's very good. If you actually go and pull up online pictures of Ezekiel's temple, you'll see a whole lot of different pictures. I mean, we're talking a lot of different pictures. I found this one to be the closest to what I think the dimensions and the pictures are. This is not actual dimensions. It's pretty close. Uh, I think they do a really good job here. And so being closest that I found to what it is, uh, I thought it would be valuable for you. Because we're going to be kind of touring this temple complex in our study tonight. Because Ezekiel's taken in a vision, and this is what he sees from to the south, and he's going to be taken through it by this person that looks like they're made out of bronze. All right. So there was a man, as we saw in chapter 40 of Ezekiel, whose appearance was like bronze in the gateway of the temple complex. And in his hand were two measuring tools one was a linen cord, this was used to measure long distances, and another one was a measuring reed. We're going to get into more of this later, but the measuring reed, as you'll see in a little bit, actually was the length of uh, six. Long cubits, as the scripture says. A cubit is about 18 inches. Usually, people, a cubit was about this far, and, but the scripture says that it was a cubit, a long cubit, which is a cubit and a hand's breadth. So it's usually about 18 inches is a cubit and three inches is, is a hand's breadth. So if it is six long cubits, how many inches long is it? No, because remember, there's 21 inches in a, in, a, in a long cubit. A long cubit is 18 plus three inches, that's 21 inches. <coughs> Multiply that times 6, 21 inches times 6. Well, let me make it easy for you. It adds up to 10 and a half feet, all right? So 10 and a half feet is the length of a, of a long, uh, six long cubits is the length of the measuring reed. That's 10 and a half feet. Keep that in mind for later on. Now, this man, though, with the bronze appearance could very possibly be a theophany. Now, some of you know what I mean when I say that. If not, it's Okay. A theophany is a visit of Jesus to the earth before he took on flesh. You'll see many times in the Bible that an angel of the Lord appeared. And this is not just an angel that represented God or an angel sent by God. But whenever you see in the scripture the term an angel of the Lord, it's referring to an angel who is the Lord. You remember when Abraham was visited by God and the other two angels. One of them was God himself. I believe it was Jesus before he took on flesh. Jesus has always existed, and that's a theophany. There'll be times that you'll see when people fall down before an angel, the angel says, get up, I'm a fellow servant just like you. But there'll be times in the scriptures where people will fall down before the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says, good for you, well done, because it's God. I believe that there's a strong chance this man with the appearance of bronze could be Jesus before he took on flesh because of something that happens in chapter 44. Jump over to chapter 44 and look at verses 1 through 5. It says, Then he, this is the man in bronze who appeared to be like bronze, brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it and eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by the way of the north to the gate in front of the temple. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. And I fell on my face and the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that that I shall tell you concerning all the statutes of the temple of the Lord and all its laws. And mark well the entrance to the temple and all the exits from the sanctuary." Um, so all of a sudden, instead of saying, the man, the man, he says, the Lord said, and then he falls on his face before this man, and does the angel tell him to get up? No, I think this man in bron- who appears to be like bronze is Jesus before he takes on flesh, coming to give Ezekiel this vision of this temple, all right? now. What this man shows to him is to be declared to the house of Israel. And like I told you earlier, the rest of the book of Ezekiel is what the Lord showed to Israel. And we'll spend the rest of our time in our study breaking that down. Jump over with me now to Ezekiel chapter 40. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 40 and look at verses 5 through 16 and try to stay with me. I'm going to read it slow, but you're going to see why I say try to stay with me. It says, And behold, there was a wall all around the outside of the temple area, and the length of the measuring reed in the man's hand was six long cubits, each being a cubit and a handbreadth in length. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed. So how thick is the wall? Ten and a half feet. Good deal. You were paying attention. And he measured the thickness of the wall it was one reed, and the height was one reed. So how tall is the wall? All right, so all around this temple complex is a wall that's ten and a half feet thick and ten and a half feet high, all right? Then he went into the gateway facing east. You see on your paper here, the outer court, eastern gateway. This is where the man was standing, and this is where he takes him in. They measured the outer wall. It was ten feet and a half feet by ten and a half feet, and now in thickness and height, and now he takes him in that gateway. All right. Then he went up into the gateway facing east, going up its steps and measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. And the side rooms. One reed long and one reed broad, and the space between the side rooms, five cubits, and the threshold of the gate by the vestibule of the gate at the inner end, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway on the inside, one reed. Then he measured the vestibule of the gateway, eight, eight cubits, and with its jams, two cubits. And the vestibule of the gate was at the inner end. And there were three side rooms on either side of the east gate. There were three of the same size, and the jams on either side were of the same size. Then he measured the width of the opening of the gateway, ten cubits, and the length of the gateway, thirteen cubits. And there was a barrier before the side rooms, one cubit on either side. And the side rooms were six cubits on either side. Then he measured the gate from the ceiling of the one side to the room to the ceiling of the other, and a breadth of twenty-five cubits. The openings faced each other, and he measured also the vestibule, twenty cubits. And around the vestibule of the gateway was the court from the front of the gate. That was the entrance to the front of the inner vestibule of the gate. Was fifty cubits. And the gateway had windows all around, narrowing inwards toward the side rooms, toward their jams. Likewise, the vestibule had windows all around inside, and on the jams were palm trees. Now, did anybody get a little lost? I did. And I've studied this, and I dug, and I tried to draw diagrams and try to calculate measurements, and God said, what are you doing? <clears throat> You're not building this. At the same time, As you can see, Ezekiel is given some very, very specific measurements. Do you see it? By the way, you can double-check me if you want. In this section of Scripture, not just where we read, but in all of the whole sections, 40 through 48, he's given 318 different specific measurements of steps, rooms, height, width, ceilings, door jams. 318 specific measurements. On top of that, there are 37 different construction terms like windows or door jams or steps or ceilings. There's 37 different specific construction terms. To try to break down each of these measurements would be very tedious and we'd probably lose most of you. All right. So what we're going to do in our study tonight and the rest of our study in Ezekiel is just pull out a few of the instructions that Ezekiel was given in the next few chapters in order to learn some necessary things and not lose anybody in the process. It was fun to know that the wall was 10 and a half feet thick and 10 and a half feet high. But once we start trying to figure out how many rooms were here and how big the rooms were and all that, pretty soon we start to have some people go, <laughs> me included, all right? But actually, I read it this way for a reason. The specific nature of these measurements show us a lot. I think they show us a lot. You see the instructions are far too specific for these to be taken spiritually. One of the things if you do a study online of how people interpret Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 is they will say that Ezekiel was given a picture of the church. That this is just simply a picture of the church and how the New Testament says that Jesus is going to build his church. And we are the temple of the Lord, and the Spirit of God comes to indwell us. And because of Israel's sin, he's going to build a new temple, which is his church. And all of chapter 40 through 48 is just simply a picture of the church. Problem with that, folks, is how do you take and make every little specific measurement mean something? Having been going through our building project, it just greatly enhances the specificity that is required by architects and by city planners and just every element of the construction process is very specific. This is to be built. This is to be built. Exactly. I thought the same thing because I have seen blueprints and I hurt myself trying to even understand blueprints half of the time because I, sometimes you're looking at the HVAC systems and all this kind of stuff, and that's on this page, and this is on this page, and they all overlap, and you're like, you know. But the reason why the, speci- the, the, the instructions are so specific is because it's to be taken literally, and this is to be built in this way. So, Kat, what if you take uh, the, the numbers and use the Hebrew language, the numbers equal a letter? If the numbers equal a letter, have fun. Now, actually, and I, I, would, I would say have fun. But again, that's a danger because we're already guessing to say that the numbers represent a Hebrew letter. Do You know what I'm saying? We've already started off on a guessing. Like you've heard me say over and over. The Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Jesus the first time were very, very specific and very, very literal. And they were fulfilled to the letter. Let's not change our hermeneutic. That's that term on how you interpret Scripture. If you're interpreting Scripture by taking it literally for the first coming of Jesus, take it literally for the second coming of Jesus. This is very specific for a reason. I don't believe it's to be taken spiritually. I believe this is specific instructions for Ezekiel to share with Israel and the people of Israel about a temple complex, as you're about to see, that he wants built in the future. All right? Now, with that in mind... this cannot be Solomon's temple. This can't be Solomon's temple because the measurements are not the same. I love the fact that they're so specific because if you took the time to go back to 1 Kings chapter 6 and look at the measurements of the temple that Solomon built, you'll find that the Holy of Holies is the exact same size in this temple as Solomon's temple, but almost everything else is on a greater scale. As big and glorious as Solomon's temple was, this is actually going to be bigger. But if you did the study, you'll find they're not the same. But because of the fact that they're not the same and the fact that they've been so specific, it helps us see he's not been given a picture of the Solomon's temple. And by the way, when this vision was given to him, what had happened to Solomon's temple? It had already been destroyed 14 years earlier by the Babylonians. So this isn't Solomon's temple. The specific nature shows us they're not the same. Also, Solomon's temple had not only been totally destroyed by this vision, God promised to dwell in this temple forever and ever with the Jews. Go to Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel chapter 43, look at verses 1 through 9. It said, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters." and the earth shone with its glory, and the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kebar Canal, and I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of Israel. How long? Forever. Yes, we saw the spirit of God and dwell Solomon's temple. But he left it. You remember? Well, I'll show you that more later on when we get to chapter 43. I want to preach on this so bad right now because it's such a fun study. I'm going to show you when we get to chapter 43 Earlier in Ezekiel, in chapter 8, we see the glory of the Lord leave Solomon's temple. But it specifically follows a path out of the temple and out of the temple complex, out the eastern gate. And at this point, the Spirit of God comes back in that same path into this temple. And he says, I'm going to stay here forever. So that shows us that not only can that, this picture that Ezekiel's been given in chapter 40, can this not be Solomon's temple because the measurements are not the same. It can't be Solomon's temple because the Spirit of God left Solomon's temple and it was destroyed. But the Spirit of God is going to indwell this temple and never leave. Go for it. Sure. How many people know it? Mm-hmm. But because of this prophecy, the Muslims put a to stop to that. Well, actually they didn't. They think they did. And we'll get into that in chapter 43. What he's referring to is, if you look at the eastern gate right now of the temple complex in Jerusalem, it's been sealed. And not only that, they not only sealed it, they put a grave, a cemetery outside it. Because, you know, the Jews weren't allowed to walk across gravestones grave in a cemetery or they'd be unclean. So to keep the Messiah from coming back through that gate, because there's a prophecy about him coming through the eastern gate... They sealed it shut so that no one can go through it, and they put a cemetery outside of it so no self-respecting Jew would ever come across the cemetery to get to the gate. What they don't understand, and by the way, let me say this, and I'll say it again when we get to chapter 43. A lot of Christians think that Jesus is going to walk through that gate in Jerusalem. No, as you will see, this is not the eastern gate of the existing city. This is the eastern gate of a future temple complex, not the one that exists. it shows the Muslims are at least reading the scriptures, that's for sure, and they're scared to death that he's gonna come back through it, and so they sealed it up. On top of that, the eastern gate that we know of now is not the one Jesus went through. It's probably below that. All right. But as I'm again, you keep me, I'm trying to try not to preach chapter 43 yet, but let me say this to you: I'm gonna show you something. Who is in the temple complex and who walks through the eastern gate tonight already that we saw? Not just Jesus, but Ezekiel. Doesn't Ezekiel take him through the eastern gate? It's open. The eastern gate of the city that is there now. And by the way, if you go and just type in eastern gate and Jesus coming through, there's all these believers, Christian teachers and preachers that say, Jesus is going to go through that gate. No, he's not. That's going to be totally destroyed. This eastern gate is the one he's going to come through. The millennial kingdom one that's going to be built. The new, well, not the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's a different one. We'll get to that in a little bit. But this is in the Millennial Kingdom Temple, and Ezekiel is allowed to go through the eastern gate, but that's in chapter 40. You see, in chapter 43, the Spirit of God will come through the eastern gate and enter the temple, and once he does, they seal it up, that one, because he's gone through it now and no one else will go through it. Do you understand? The prophecy says that no one after Jesus goes through will be allowed to go through. But we'll get all of that on chapter 43. Go ahead. When that, you sing that him just inside the eastern egg over there, I yeah. do see him. Does that mean? It's coming from this prophecy. I, I believe we'll see him. I believe we're going to be in this temple complex. Folks, I want you to get excited about it. Don't get too excited thinking this is exactly how it's going to look because you may be disappointed. But we're going to be here. You're going to get to walk on this. This is literally going to be built. And Jesus is literally going to be there And we're going to get to be there. It's going to be kind of cool. But that's going to be during the Millennial Kingdom. The specifics of this temple complex show us, though, that this can't be Zerubbabel's temple or the second temple. Remember, the first temple was the one built by Solomon. That that was destroyed. After Ezekiel's time, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, remember after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon... The Jews are allowed to go back to Israel and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. And Ezra and Nehemiah list all that. And they build this temple again. They build a temple again. And some say, well, Ezekiel's given a vision of the second temple that was about to be built in a few years by Ezra and Nehemiah. Well, well, (laughs) you're going right to it. You're going right to it. Go to Ezra chapter 3. Go to Ezra chapter 3 and look at verses 8 through 13. And you'll see that this can't be. We've already just said it's bigger than Solomon's complex. Go to the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Ezra chapter 3, verse 8 says, Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jazadak, thank you, "...made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And with Jeshua and with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad, and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first one, Solomon's, the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, Though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The people that had never seen Solomon's temple are going, praise the Lord, we're building the temple. The people that had seen Solomon's temple are going, it's so small. So was Ezekiel given a vision of what the temple was supposed to be look like when they go back into Israel and build the temple? Can't be because this one's much, much bigger than the one that was actually built. And they didn't follow these instructions. Also, remember the Spirit of God left Solomon's temple and never came into Zerubbabel's temple. The Spirit of God left and never went into that temple that was built by Zerubbabel. Never was there. But the Spirit of God comes to indwell this temple forever, so it can't be the second temple. It's not Solomon's temple, it's not the second temple or Zerubbabel's temple. And even though Herod greatly enlarged the second temple, you know, if you remember the time of Herod, he actually enlarged the temple complex so much that it was so beautiful that the, the disciples came to Jesus and said, look at this magnificent place, and of course Jesus said, it's going to be leveled, not one stone is going to be left upon another. Even though Herod greatly enlarged the second temple, the dimensions of this temple are still greater than the one Herod added to. That's why there's so much value in the specific nature of all these instructions and the specific dimensions that are given to us in Ezekiel 40 and following. It shows us it can't be taken spiritually. It has to be taken literally. It shows us it's not Solomon's temple because they're not the same dimensions obviously not Zerubbabel's temple because it's way bigger than that, and it's not the same temple that was enlarged by Herod because even though Herod enlarged it, it's still nowhere near as big as this one is. This is a different temple. Go ahead. How do we know how large Herod's remodeling was? Um, because of historical ar- ar- facts and archeology span and all that kind of stuff, there are those kinds of things that showed us how big it was. I just don't have that with me right now. but. It was well-known. As you know, Jerome, uh, there are other historians that cataloged a lot of that kind of stuff. Yep, but it's not the same. It's definitely not the same. Now, this shows us that this must be, and listen closely to this part because I don't want to lose you here. This all shows us that this temple that Ezekiel has shown must be a third or a fourth temple still yet to be built. We know for a fact that what Ezekiel has shown is definitely a temple yet to be built It's not Solomon's, it's not the one that Zerubbabel built in time of Ezra and Nehemiah that was enlarged by Herod, because what happened to that one? It was destroyed by Titus in when? A.D. 70, it was destroyed. There's been no temple in Israel since A.D. 70. So this temple, if it's not those two temples, must be another temple. Some say a third, some say a fourth. I'm in the group that leans toward a fourth. The New Testament, though, folks, listen closely. The New Testament refers three times to a third temple as being in existence at the end of the tribulation period. I'm going to say it to you again. The New Testament refers three times to a third temple as being in existence at the time of the end of the tribulation period. And Ezekiel's temple is either this third one, which has been cleansed for Jesus to indwell it, or it's a fourth one altogether. I'm gonna show you tonight why I believe it's a fourth one altogether. I still think we have another temple that's gonna be built, and it's not this one. I believe what we see here is a fourth one to be built, and I'll show you scripturally why in just a bit. But let's go real quick to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I wanna just show you real quick these references to the fact that there's gonna be a temple at the end of the tribulation period prior to the millennial kingdom. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses three and four. Paul says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, when Paul wrote this, there was a temple, but that temple was destroyed. So Paul is referring to a third temple. That has to exist for the Antichrist to step into that temple. There's going to be a temple. When it's going to be rebuilt, we don't know. Will it be prior to the tribulation period? Will it be during the beginning of the tribulation period as a part of the covenant with the Antichrist? We don't know when or how it's going to be built, but the scripture shows us that there's going to be a temple in Israel for the Antichrist to step into it to declare himself to be God. There's going to be a third temple, we know. In Matthew 24, you don't have to turn there, verse 15, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, that's the holy of holies, he tells the Jews at that time, run for your lives, just get out of Judea, get out of Jerusalem, because it's going to get bad. In Revelation chapter 11, go to Revelation chapter 11, you'll see something very similar to what's going on with Ezekiel. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. During the tribulation period, John is taken to see the temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, And I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. How long is that, by the way, 42 months? Three and a half years. All right, so he was told to measure the temple that existed during the tribulation period, but he was told, Don't measure the outer court. That's been handed over to the Gentiles, and they're going to trample it. And for three and a half years. So there's a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. Is this temple that Ezekiel's been given a vision of that temple that's going to be rebuilt? Possibly if Jesus cleanses the temple before he comes to indwell it. But I lean toward the fact that what we're seeing here in Ezekiel 40 and following is a fourth temple that's going to be built. There's gonna be one that the Antichrist steps into. I think it's gonna be destroyed during the tribulation period and the earthquake that's gonna split Jerusalem into three parts. And I think, for another reason, there's gonna be a fourth one built. Well, let me just say this to you first before I explain to you why I think there's gonna be a fourth one. This temple that Ezekiel is given a vision of cannot be the temple in the new heaven and the new earth. Some people try to say, well, this is the temple in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, the problem with this is this. The city of Jerusalem in the new heaven and the new earth has no temple. Well, the city itself is huge, but it, but you, go with me to Revelation 21. There's no need for one. God will be yeah, very good. Go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Look at verses one through four. It says then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them and they'll be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jump over to verses 22 and 24. and I Or through 24. And I saw no temple in the city... For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So is there a temple in the new heaven and the new earth? So this can't be the one in the new heaven and the new earth because there's a temple. All right? So is this Solomon's temple that he's been given a vision of? Obviously not. Is this the second temple or is Zerubbabel's temple? Can't be. Is it a third temple? Possibly I lean toward a fourth temple, but I'll get to why in a second. Yes, ma'am. And is that because Jesus said I would raise it up in three days? No, what he raised up in three days is, his, is talking to about his body. But that might have also been a reference to something I'm going to show you in just a little bit. We know that the Bible tells us very clearly that when Jesus refer, said, i destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, the scripture says he was referring to his body. But there's a possibility he also had dual prophecy, which we see a lot. And I'll get to that in just a second. Yes, sir, go ahead. temple be destroyed because, you know, since there's an east wall and it talks about Jesus walking, doesn't Satan want to go there and like mimic him and try to go through it Then he might destroy the third one and build the fourth one? Yeah, I, I, Jesus isn't gonna destroy that. Well, in one sense, he will. It's, I think it'll be destroyed during all that huge earthquake that levels the earth and everything, all right? now. The millennial temple will be built by the branch. I don't know if you know this or not, but the scriptures tells us that the millennial temple will be built by the branch. And there will be a covering over it to protect its inhabitants from heat and storm during the millennial kingdom. You say, huh? Well, that's why I'm here. Let me take you to the scriptures. Go to Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. Look at verses 12 and 13. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. By the way, we've already done this study. Whose name is the branch? It's Jesus. Remember, a branch shall come from the stump of Jesse, and he'll have the spirit of the Lord on him and all these seven spirits of God. And say to him, Thus says, excuse me, the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be shall be between them both. So here Zechariah says he's going to build his temple, and then he's going to sit on the throne there. Now some try to spiritualize that, and they say, well, that's just the church. He's going to build his church. And... We're the temple of God and all that. But I think it's more literal than that. Go to Isaiah chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 4. Look at verses 2 through 6. In that day, again, prophecy about the very last days. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy, There'll be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and the rain. So over this complex, there's going to be the Shekinah glory of the Lord that protects them from the heat of the day. And if storms pass over, they'll be protected there as well. That's got to be millennial kingdom. That's not new heaven and new earth. Because remember, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sun. There is no moon because the light is the glory of God himself. So this can't be, Ezekiel's not been given a vision of the, new t- of the new heaven and the new earth temple because there's no temple in the new heaven and the new earth. Folks, when you take the time to study and break it down, and as we go into this more and more, we won't finish it tonight, but as we go more and more into chapters 40 through 48, you'll see this has to be the millennial kingdom temple. This is a temple that's going to be during the millennial kingdom where Jesus is going to rule and reign. And as we've looked at earlier, David will be as well. Go back to chapter 40 of Ezekiel. I'm going to read to you this section real quickly, and then we're going to close with a couple of things to get us ready for next week. Ezekiel chapter 40, verses 17 through 43. Then he brought me, and by the way, if you want to try to f- trace our steps, we've gone through the eastern gate so far. This is as far as we've gotten. He's given descriptions of what's going on in the eastern gate. Oh, there's three rooms on each side of the vestibule there in the eastern gate. Then he brought me into the outer court, and behold, there were three or chambers and a pavement all around the court. 30 chambers faced the pavement. And if you look on your thing, you'll see there's some on the south side, some on the east side, some on the north side, 10 on each side. 30 chambers faced the pavement, and the pavement ran along the sides of the gates corresponding to the length of the gates. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the distance from the inner front of the lower gate to the outer front of the inner court, and it's 100 cubits on the east side and on the north side. And as for the gate that faced toward the north belonging to the outer court, he measured its length and its breadth. Its side rooms, three on either side, its jams and its vestibule, were of the same size as those of the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits, its breadth 25 cubits, and its windows, its vestibule, and its palm trees were of the same size as those of the gate that faced toward the east. And by seven steps, people would go up to it and find its vestibule before them. And opposite the gate on the north, as, as on the east, was a gate to the inner court, and he measured from gate to gate 100 cubits. And he led me toward the south. And behold, there was a gate on the south. And he measured its jams and its vestibule. They had the same size as the others. Both it and its vestibule had all the windows all around, like the windows of the others. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 25 cubits. And there were seven steps leading up to it. And its vestibule was before them. And it had palm trees on its jams, one on either side. And there was a gate on the south of the inner court. And he measured from the gate to gate toward the south 100 cubits. And then he brought me to the inner court through the south gate and he measured the south gate. It was of the same size as the others. And he, in its side rooms, its jams and its vestibule were of the same size as the others with both it and its vestibule. It had windows all around. Its length was 50 cubits, its breadth was 25 cubits and there were vestibules all around, 25 cubits long and five cubits broad. Its vestibule faced the outer court and the palm trees were on its jams and its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the inner court on the east side, and he measured the gate. It was the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, its vestibules were of the same size as the others. And both it and its vestibule had windows all around. Its lengths were 50 cubits, and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibule faced the outer court, and it had palm trees on its jams on either side, and its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gate, and he measured it. It had the same size as the others. Its side rooms, its jams, and its vestibule were of the same size as the others. It had windows all around, its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 25 cubits. Its vestibule faced the outer court and it had palm trees on its jams on either side and its stairway had eight steps. There was a chamber with its door in the vestibule of the gate where the burnt offering was to be washed. And the vestibule of the gate were two tables on either side on which the burnt offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering were to be slaughtered. And off to the side on the outside, as one goes up to the entrance of the north gate, were two tables. And off to the other side of the vestibule of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on either side of the gate, eight tables in which to slaughter. And there were four tables of hewn stone for the burnt offering, and a cubit and a half long, and a cubit and a half broad, and one cubit high, on which the instruments were, belaid, were to be laid with the burnt offerings, and the sacrifices were slaughtered. And hooks, a hand-breadth long, were fastened all around within, and on the tables the flesh of the offering was to be laid. Again, doesn't sound like the church now, does it? There's a lot of things here that now you say, this can't be a spiritual rendition of the church. No, the the instructions are specific. If you were able to follow, he was taken in the eastern gate. He was shown the uh, inner court way, the the measuring between, by the way, it's 175 feet between the outer court gate and the inner court gate. He was then taken up to the north gate. They didn't go through it, but they saw that it was the same size as the others. Then he was taken back around to the south gate, shown the south gate, and they measured it. It was the same size as the others. And then he was taken into the inner court, toward the temple area there, through the southern, south gate, the southern gate. shown the eastern gate, show the northern gate. And at the end, we saw that on the northern gate, there were all these tables for the sacrifices. There was a chamber off the vestibule. There was a door there in the vestibule of the northern gate, which led into a chamber where they would wash the sacrifices. And then on each side, there were these tables where the sacrifices were to be slaughtered. Now, Ezekiel, like I said, he's brought into the temple area through the eastern gate which we saw in Ezekiel 43, five through 6, and all that. And that's important, because like I touched on, for where we're going to get to chapter 43, he's allowed to go through the eastern gate, but later on you're going to see, when we get to chapter 43, after the Spirit of God comes through the eastern gate and enters the temple, and he says, and the voice from the throne comes out, saying, I'm going to stay here forever. He's taken out the northern gate. We're not going to get there tonight. He's going to be taken out the northern gate, outside the temple area, back to the eastern gate, and now it's shut. And it's, he's told it can't be opened anymore because the Lord has gone through. Do You understand? This whole shutting of the eastern gate isn't going to happen until after Jesus comes in and dwells the tabernacle in the millennial kingdom. So the whole shutting of the eastern gate that's gone on in in Jerusalem, everybody's saying, oh, the Muslims don't realize they were fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel because they shut the gate because the Lord went through it. No, first off, he didn't even go through that gate. It was probably the one underneath. Second of all, they're not fulfilling the prophecy of Ezekiel because that's not the gate that he's going to go through. And on top of that, if you read the scriptures in context, Ezekiel walks through that gate. But then when he gets back to it, it's now shut because the Spirit of God had come through. We want to so bad make all the prophecies come true now. Which, that's the danger of reading your Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and trying to make it all fit. I, I know a famous preacher is not going to say their name because many of you might know them, but they will say, well, the Bible says there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. We have satellites now. That's what the prophecy was talking about, signs in the stars. I'm like, no. The Bible's real clear that that's going to be the end of the tribulation period when the stars fall from the sky and the sky recedes like a scroll. We want to make the prophecies be fulfilled right now. It's not going to be fulfilled until this happens at that time. Now, here's the question I want to ask as we close for tonight to get you ready for next week. And some of you are probably thinking it. All right. Next week, we're going to begin with a study of why there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. Because a lot of people have asked and are probably wondering, okay, the Bible said that Jesus was the last sacrifice. Why are there going to be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom if Jesus was the last sacrifice? Well, I'm going to give you a little hint. Does the scripture say that Jesus was the last sacrifice for sin? See, we've always said that Jesus was the last sacrifice for sin. But was Jesus the last sacrifice for sin? No, he was the only sacrifice for sin. Let me give you a little hint here. And I'm going to take you to the scripture that talks about this as we close tonight. Did the Old Testament sacrifices take away sin? No. They never did. They were just a picture of what Jesus was going to do. Listen to me again. Jesus was not the last sacrifice for sin. He was the only sacrifice for sin. So if the Old Testament sacrifices were just a picture of what Jesus was going to do, I got no problem with during the millennial kingdom because there's going to be people on the earth who aren't believers still, remember? There's going to be people that are born during the millennial kingdom to the Gentiles and the Jews who had been given righteousness because of their faith at the end of the tribulation period. And they're going to make babies and there's going to be people that are going to need to be taught and there's going to be a sacrificial system and it's going to be done right and pure and holy and it will be a picture of what Christ has done. How many of you take the Lord's Supper? Do you sacrifice Jesus every time you do it? Why do you take the Lord's Supper? To remember what he's done. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. It's a remembrance. Folks, get over the fact that there's sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom, just like they were a picture of what was to come The sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom will be a memorial of what he has done because he's going to be there, and it's going to be a picture. I think there's more to it than that, which I'm going to get to when we study next week. That's just a commercial. (laughs) So let's close tonight with Hebrews chapter 10. When we say that he was the last sacrifice for sin, we act like there were other sacrifices for sin. There were never any other sacrifices for sin. He's the only. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year every year make perfect those who have drawn near. Otherwise, they would, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now what we're going to do when we pick up next week is to pick up here in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to break it down, and then we're going to start taking a look at why the sacrificial system during the Millennial Kingdom. You've gotten a commercial. Do a little study. We'll come back next week. I love you. We'll see you then.